Welcome back to our listeners. I'm Rosen Boy and I'm brand positioning, reputation management and change activation specialist. And I'm back here with my co-host Patrick Fitzmaurice. Hello, Roz. Excited to be here with you today to explore change even more with Paul. It's going to be a fabulous discussion. Great. Well, as Patrick said, our guest today is Paul Gardner, and Paul is the CEO of the Mantis Group, a leisure, ecotourism, and development group that brings unique destinations and personalized experiences to its guests from all over the world. Hi, Paul. Hi, Roz. Hi, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. So, Paul, Mantis is no stranger to reinvention and probably one of the best known examples of entrepreneurialism that I have had the pleasure of following over the years. Uh, could you kick us off by telling our listeners a little bit about the history of Mantis, how it all started and where the group finds itself today? Thanks, Roz. Yeah, listen, I'll go right back to the beginning um, before any of us were around. So let's go back to 1820 because... Uh, if you go back to that sort of period in our history, there was uh, um, large-scale uh, recession across Europe, and that was a result of the Napoleonic Wars. And so what happened was the British had to deal with that, and they sent 6,000 people down to South Africa. And they, they sent them down to Cape Town, and, and, and the British government, they said, no, you're carrying on. And they had to sail for another few weeks, and they ended up in Algoa Bay, which is Port Elizabeth in South Africa, and um, they uh, were each handed a, 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 an ox wagon and a head of oxen, and they were told to go and settle the land. And so they trekked into the interior, and uh, they encountered wildlife and indigenous tribes and all these crazy experiences that they encountered um, on their journey as they settled the land. And so then if you fast forward to 1990, my father comes onto the scene as a young entrepreneur in his 40s, Adrian Gardner. And um, he was keen on buying a piece of land um, as a retreat for our family. And it was only because my brother and I were boarding school at a nearby um, uh, village called Grahamstown or town. And, um, and we, my parents lived in Port Elizabeth. And this piece of land that he stumbled upon was equidistant between the two. And that's where we met on weekends. And then, of course, there was a hell of a drought at the time, and all the farmers were up in arms, and they were just selling their farms. It was a hundred-year-old drought, and they and these old uh, British farmers that had been farming there forever were just dropping like flies. And um, so, Dad ended up with ten farms before he knew it, and he thought, "Okay, this is this is quite interesting because this thing's going to start burning a hole in my wallet if if I'm not careful." And uh, and so he then got hold of a lecturer from Rhodes University who had published all the original manuscripts of the British settlers. And he started to read up um, in this book that he had published about all their encounters um, on that journey to go and settle the land. And it was, you know, they'd stumble across prides of lion, buffalo, elephants, indigenous tribes, anything and everything was published or, or was written down in the back of their Bibles. And this lecturer from Rhodes University got hold of all of those Bibles and he published his book. And that was the blueprint to rewilding the Eastern Cape in South Africa. So dad started to bring back all these animals that had long since been shot out and cleared by the British settlers. And uh, he didn't, had lived in Port Elizabeth most of his life, didn't realize how rich and diverse the Eastern Cape was. And so that's where the journey began for us. He, he was a pioneer. The only other people that were rewilding were Yellowstone National Park. They were bringing back the bears and the wolves, and there Adrian was bringing back the lions and the leopards and elephants. 
So everything had been wiped out and was, he turned back the clock. How old was he at this stage? He was probably my age. So uh, I, I would have said 30s, but actually 40. <laughs> so mid 40s, I guess. Oh, wow. That's a bold move to make, right? Very Rewilding. Bold. Yeah, in particular, because nobody knew what the hell rewilding even meant back in the 1990s. And of course, South Africa was coming out of apartheid. So, you know, early 90s, we were on the brink of a civil war. Uh, Mandela had, I think, was about to be released. And then we had our free election in 94. And, uh, you know, it was nervous times. And and of course, Adrian had had spent a fortune on this. And uh, he'd opened in 92 and and no sooner was, uh, almost had to close. Murray and I, my brother and I almost got pulled out of boarding school. It was an expensive school. Um, because he couldn't afford to keep us there. And, and that was the drain of Shamari because there was no tourism to our country. But yet, dad being an entrepreneur that he is, just took this massive risk and forged ahead. And, uh, and then, of course, what happened in 1995, uh, South Africa hosted the Rugby World Cup. Mandela came walking out uh, wearing the, 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 the green and gold rugby jersey and, and, and the you know, the, the All Blacks didn't know how to deal with that. And of course, we, we won the World Cup and the world was watching South Africa pull off its first major international event. And that was the trigger point for tourism flooding into South Africa. And of course, Shamwari was the closest game reserved to Cape Town. So, you know, you talk about location, location, location. It was there and it was this amazing conservation project. It, it just ticked all those boxes. And, you know, you can imagine from a thousand hectare little reserve that had nothing. I mean, it was just barren land and sheep, goats, and cattle that were starving to death to 10 years later, Tiger Woods, Brad Pitt, you name them. They all came to John Shamari. Travolta. Yeah, he was a regular. <laughs> it was just this amazing success story. Um, and, you know, Dad was incredibly humble about this amazing achievement 30 years ago. And we're all thinking about doing it these days, but he was so far ahead of the game. And where's Mantis today? So, you know, you guys started off with the wilding and then into, Mm. you know, the game reserve business. And I know that you have expanded the portfolio and changed the model, you know, a number of times since then. Where where is the group today? Okay, so let's fast forward to 2000. So from 1992, when Shamwari opened to 2000, we, um, as a result of the success of Shamwari, we acquired a hotel in Cape Town, remember Stiernberg, and we got Lake Pleasant on the garden route, and then the Saxon in Johannesburg. And, and, and those were all feeders to the game reserve. And uh, in 2000, we thought, okay, we've got several hotels and lodges now. It's time to put a, a name over them and a brand. And so we came up with the Platinum Collection and all the regular sort of names. And then Dad's great friend was the late Dr. Ian Player. So Gary Player, if you're a golfer, was his brother. And Ian was, was uh, uh, what his brother was to golf, Ian was to conservation. He was kind of the Attenborough of South Africa. He saved the white rhino from extinction in the 50s. Just a real salt of the earth conservationist. And Dad asked him to come up with a name. He said he was struggling like hell. And Ian said uh, the next morning, he said, you've kept me up all night because I've been thinking about this bloody name for you. (laughs) And he came up with the name Mantis, which is really the little prey mantis, the insect. And it's one of the only insects that you find on all six of the seven continents. And um, there's a lovely story behind it um, because, you know, before black or white arrived in Southern Africa, it was the Bushmen. Like in America, you had the Indians, um, Australia, the Aborigines, South Africa had the Bushmen, Southern Africa had the Bushmen. And they worshipped that little insect. They weren't scared of the lions, the elephants, the buffaloes. They were scared of that and, and respected that little insect. 
And they, their theory was that if you took care of the small things in life, everything else would take care of itself around that. And so we adapted that name to that thousand acres of land that we started with and the rest is kind of history. And then the other beauty of the name Mantis is the acronym. Man and nature together is sustainable. And, and we came Fantastic. up with that uh, several years ago and we use that now. That's very much part of our DNA as we, as we try and conquer the world and take the, the Mantis DNA to other parts and other continents. So when you talk about change, Roz, obviously we started with that, that little game reserve. We, 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 we acquired other hotels and um and then uh you know we 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 had to create and change and diversify because it wasn't just about managing hotels we didn't want to own everything but we the the, the first bit of diversification i guess came uh, we, we we could go to the saxon which we didn't own in johannesburg and believe me the saxon is probably one of the most iconic hotels in africa if not the world and uh, you've been there you know what it's like mm -hmm. it's a very special property it's where nelson mandela edited his book long walk to freedom and uh, the owner approached us and said, listen, I've seen what you've done at Shamwari and how you manage that. I want you guys to come manage my property. So that was our first step um, of diversification and change for the, for the group because suddenly we were managing people's assets for them and running those boutique hotels in the best way that we knew how. And then the second thing was, you know, we, we had spent 10 years developing lodges and, and um, learning uh, all about conservation and what fences could hold in big animals and all of that. So that was probably the second piece of diversification and change for us because we realized that we actually had, had built up so much interesting intellect and, and IP, intellectual property. And, and we suddenly knew how to build boutique hotels and game reserves and lodges and so on and so forth. So we developed a whole development division. And, uh, and, and then we went a step further and we looked at um, the marketing piece. And so we could, we could, if somebody needed a marketing, marketing solution, they didn't necessarily need us to manage their property. We could plug them into the Mantis um, um, engine. And uh, because we had a sales team running around the world anyway, it just meant that they had to take another brochure with them. So again, more change. Um, and, and, and it kept coming, you know, then we, we, we set up um, a whole student program at Shamwari and, and that was taking kids who's, you know, time and time again, we'd get a wealthy parent uh, say to, to one of our game rangers, oh, my little son, Johnny, wants to come and work on a game reserve. Can you help him? And we said, okay, well, there's an idea and there's an opportunity. <laughs> so we set up a whole gap year student program where kids would come and they'd work behind the scenes on the game reserve. They wouldn't be seen by the guests. They'd be working with a vet and the wildlife guys and the anti-poaching guys. And, uh, and so we ended up uh, with a, a program that catered for about 50 students every month. And they were paying us top dollar to be there, 3,000 pounds per person to dig holes and fix fences and everything <laughs> else. But they really contributed and they learned and they came back real ambassadors. And then they'd say to their parents, crikey, that's one of the best places in the world. You've got to go visit it. So it became a marketing tool too, yeah. not only a conservation tool. So that, that was the, the, the fourth pillar. And then the final pillar was obviously the conservation piece. And, and so we can build game reserves for, for people and consult on projects. You know, we did a massive project in um, the Middle East back in 2003. That was the first consultancy pro, um, call that we got. And, and it was um, the late Sheikh Zayed was a huge philanthropist. And he was, the, he, he was in, responsible for Abu Dhabi which as we know, when you talk about the seven Emirates, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah, Ras Al-Khaimah and others, um, Abu Dhabi is the, the sort of uh, capital of the Emirates. And 
the late Sheikh Syed was so passionate about conservation and wildlife. And he, he could see in the 70s already how we were destroying wildlife. And he had an island in the Gulf and he started to stock that with endangered species. And in 2003, we were asked as Mantis to come and consult on how that we could turn that into a commercial entity and look after the wildlife there and everything. We put the whole master plan together for that, for that island. That was a, a very random job, but it was our first real step out of Africa. So, yeah, and that was an interesting one because wasn't it um, desert sand? Oh, and absolutely. then you had to now bring in wildlife and trees and animals where, you know, the water supply on, on beach sand. <laughs> I remember yeah. that story. Yeah, well, you know, when you're pumping so much oil and, and just feeding the, the, the gas-rich uh, people around the world, um, I guess uh, you just turn the, the, the seawater into, into drinkable water. So they could plant anything there. I mean, they had a lake on the thing there with birds from all over the world. Giraffes, rhinos, and there was there was twenty four hour water pumping right onto the yeah. island to keep a tree alive and an animal yeah. alive. I mean, that's just such amazing uh, it, um, consulting work. I mean, it, it was it was fascinating. Whether or not it was the right thing to do, I think in the seventies, his vision for that absolutely bang on. You know, it's all about protection of wildlife and everything else. Whether you want to do it in that part of the world where the temperatures are so high and the cost of running that, it it, it kind of is a bit skewed. But, it was, but, you it was, were, but you were getting called. I mean, you guys were yeah. getting known around the world yeah. for these complex... That, that's exactly it. It, it, yeah. it was it, the penny dropped. And we thought, wow, you know what? The world is our oyster. This is such, this is, uh, it's, it's such amazing news that, that uh, you know, the, the Abu Dhabi government has asked us to come and look at this island. I mean, wow, from the late Sheikh Zayed. I mean, that's a hell of a feather in our cap. Absolutely. So that was the and beginning of all. Or the, that was kind of the beginning of, of Mantis really starting to blossom three years in, you know? Yeah, and now you guys are very heavy into ecotourism, right? I mean, in, yeah. in, in terms of the, you know. Well, you know, Gros, you, we, I know we touched on it in our briefing session, but, um, you know, in 2007, we got a knock on the door from Dubai World. And um, they um, were looking, they were on a shopping spree throughout Africa. You know, they, they got involved with um, Rwanda and they bought a huge gorilla camp there. They bought Bubi, which is a massive uh, a concession in Zimbabwe. They bought the Cape Town waterfront, um, amongst many other assets, from Senegal all the way down to Cape Town. And we managed to get on a shopping list. And there's a story behind that, but I won't go into that now. But they approached us and they said, actually, they want to own Shamwari because they see this as something that they could take across Africa. The Shamwari model was working so efficiently and so well, a pure ecotourism sustainable model. And so, um, uh, they, they, so you know, dad being an entrepreneur uh, and, a, and, a, and a real businessman saw the opportunity and he, and he saw Shamwari and, and you know, the, the kids in our family, my sister and brother and mom were up in arms and how can you give away the family jewels? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just Shamwari. We owned three game reserves and he got, he, he managed to sell all of them to the Dubai government. And, uh, and that was the, the end of that for us. But uh, we were left with Mantis and, and you talk about ecotourism and, you know, what did the future hold for us? Cause that was a massive change for us now. We, yeah. Everything was built on that. I mean, I had an office here in the UK of, probably 10 or 15 people in Sloan Street, you know, a very expensive premise. And suddenly all those marketing funds that helped me sustain my whole team here had gone and I had mm. to collapse my whole office. It was very yeah. sad. I had a lot of people that had been with me for a long time. And yeah. suddenly we were, we, all we were left with was Mantis and we had to rebuild. And um, 
in one of our sessions, uh, one of our teams stood up and said, you know what, you've still got some interesting stuff in your group. You know, you've got this guerrilla camp that, that we'd, we'd been managing. Uh, we, uh, it was a chimpanzee camp. Uh, there was, uh, we, still, we were still managing Shamwari at the time. And uh, we, we, we had properties in Cape Town, which we still do today. And they said, you know what, if you look at your little group, you've got the bucket list of things. You know, you can go and have a glass of wine on Table Mountain. You can go and see Africa's Big Five at Shamwari. You can then go and do gorilla trekking and chimps. And there were other things, you know, and we thought, okay, well, that's quite interesting. And why aren't we exporting that to other, that, that whole message and that whole Africa bucket list to other parts of the world? Because, you know, the Canadians have got spectacular uh, lodges. Uh, yeah. Alaskans do. In America, you've got some really cool stuff. You know, you've got those dude ranches and you've got, uh, uh, there's a particular place that I love called the Ranch at Rock Creek. And, and you know, Montana, Utah, there's a beautiful camp there today. Um, and, and then Australia, the outback. And so we went on a bit of a mission and we, did, we didn't go and acquire, we formed partnerships and alliances with uh, the best in class in America and the best in class in Canada and Australia. Yeah. And, and, and we attached them to the Mantis brand. It was quite a smart move because in, in, in about 2008 or nine, I stumbled across the only hotel on Antarctica which is called White Desert. And, and subsequently, I've become very good friends with Patrick Woodhead and his wife, Robin. They live in Cape Town. And you access the White Desert from Cape Town. It's a five-hour flight. And not many people know this. And uh, you, land, you land on Antarctica and you spend a week there with us uh, in, in, in the Wichuay camp, which is just these domes. They're permanent structures. They're bolted down onto the rocks. But the camp is only open for two months of the year because... You know, it's, you can't land the plane there after that because yeah. the storms roll in and you can't see this far in front of your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, serious. I mean, every blizzard that comes through there is like a category five hurricane. So, yeah. But it suddenly put Mantis in a, in a whole new world because we were now the only hotel group on the planet with a presence on all seven continents. And that was the game changer. Yeah. Paul, listening to you, I kind of process this the way I think some of our listeners may be processing it. And then to, to hear you tell the narrative and starting back with, you know, your dad, um, somewhat opportunistically cobbling together a number of farms because disruption made them available. And now you have this organization that's in so many different businesses and involved in one thing that people could say of the two things I want to explore is, wow, so there was this master vision, right? There's a master plan. There's, you know, wow, right. I understand exactly where I'm going to go and it's going to take me 15 or 20 years to get there. And that's going to anchor all of our thinking. Although I would say, as I'm listening to you talk, it doesn't actually sound like that. So what is the tip that made it successful? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think, so many, so many of your listeners and so many people work in this corporate environment and it's all cookie cut and structured. And, and you know, they all started back there then too. But believe me, and, and you know the, the answer to that is there was, there was no vision. I think when you work for an entrepreneur, it's all over the shop. You know, dad will come up with an idea and we'll go off on a tangent or I'll come up with an idea and we'll go off on another tangent. And we throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see if it sticks. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't, you know, but uh, you've just got to have those lucky breaks and you've got to be willing to spend the money to take those chances too, um, but in a clever way, you know, dads and, and none of us are, we, we, not, we don't waste money. Um, we're very cautious about how we do that. But um, I guess a lot of it is luck. 
Um, but a lot of it is having a team around you that comes with you for the ride and supports you through that because dad has built an incredible team of people. Some have, have been with him as long as 30 years. Some have passed on on, uh, on, on the way because, uh, you know, they've, they, we, we, the group just outgrew them. But um, it's it definitely a, a people business, this particularly hospitality, I think, more than anything. And, and we try and give a lot of our people the independence to make decisions. So you look at our little lodges, you know, they, some of them are only six bedrooms. Um, some of them are bigger. Some of them are 70 rooms. Um, but we try and turn all of our general managers into little entrepreneurs themselves, decision makers themselves, so that they can, we empower them and we give them the, the choice to make some serious decisions. And, and we, every now and again, you've got to reel them back in. But I think it's very much about empowering those people that have been so loyal to you. And, and that builds loyalty and, and people staying with you for longer. So I think that's probably um, it because there was no roadmap at all, not with Mr. Gardner, forget it. <laughs> well, but but it's not a thing to hold you back, right? It's a, it's it's a, a little bit of fearlessness. Oftentimes, people who are great change activators get say, "Well, you're just like I don't have that fearlessness that you have," or "I don't." And people think it's risky. And I love the way you said it. It's 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 thoughtful risk. It's not and not uh, it's not like wild abandoned risk. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know cautiously being able to take steps to mitigate risk. But I love how you said that, right? Because uh, there's so many people that get hung up and change that say, well, wait, I had a five-year strategic plan. Yes, good for you. You had a five-year strategic plan. Conditions actually don't support that plan. So you need to be ready to pivot and be bold. And it just sounds like you, your organization has been so agile and nimble at doing that. So I think it's fascinating. Yeah, listen, I mean, dad, dad and, the, and the group have had ups and downs, believe me, you know, suddenly you, you, we, we've had this, uh, this um, pandemic crisis before, you know, a couple of years ago, the Ebola broke out and you know what happened to the world then. And then, yeah. you know, then we had the water crisis in Cape Town. And of course, everybody, the whole world, because of social media, thought that Cape Town was going to run out of water. And there was day zero. We put a number to it. Right. It was meant to be a localized campaign for Cape Townians to try and give them a bit of a fright. And of course, with social media, boom. boom. It's the first, first city in the world's gonna run out of water. And, <laughs> and you must see the curve in tourism. It just went down like this. Everyone said, okay, let's right. wait for the rains to come again. And then we'll go to Cape Town. Right. And, and so all of those little things disrupt any business. And we've had to right. deal with a lot of that. Africa is not a place for sissies. It's a bloody difficult place. <laughs> oh, there's, there's a headline right there that everybody can learn from, right? Um, but this notion of a master plan and vision. So you kind of talked about that. The second thing that I had in my head as I was kind of listening to your narrative as you brought out that story, I could be sitting here saying, so Paul and his dad and his entire family, they're just extraordinary people. Like, like there's something unique about how they are as people. So if, yes, they can be successful at doing that. But our, our listeners and I could be sitting here saying, but I'm not that extraordinary. Like I can't do that, right? So they, they, there was just something uniquely extraordinary about them that makes them be able to do that. What would you say to somebody who's kind of sitting here going, yeah, I get it. It's an amazing story and it's so impressive and it's awesome, but I can't do that. So it's a very good question that Patrick, because... Obviously, you're hearing me tell a story here, largely about my father. And I'm in the shadow as a son, often asking myself, crikey, what am I doing at the age that dad was doing uh, in, at, at the similar age, building this empire, this great Shamwari game reserve? And I'm sitting in England here in my home in Surrey. Da, da, da. You know, maybe I'll discount myself, but it's, uh, it, 
it, it, he is a special being. There's no doubt about it. And I think there are so, there's the Bransons of the world and Elon Musk's of the world that just have a very special DNA that we all, I think what we need to try and do is aspire to some of that because uh, I think if I didn't have a father like I do, I, I, I would hate to think where I am today. Um, but thank God I've got that. And I, I don't think it, it, because I'm a, his son that, that needs to just resonate with me. I can resonate with so many other people. So um, I think we need to have these people in our lives uh, and be inspired by them. And they, they give you hope. And it doesn't have to be in a big way that dad's done it or Elon has done it. I mean, crikey. Right. It's in your own little way. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on my own little journey. And fortunately, I, I, I got to meet a gentleman called Bear Grylls. And some of your listeners may know him as the face of adventure and, and everything else. And um, uh, he's, he's, he's another uh, great sort of uh, icon who's really cracked it. And, and not just in TV. He's an entrepreneur of note. He's one of the hardest working people I've ever, ever come across. He'll churn out show after show after show. I mean, this lockdown is killing him, that I know. But he, uh, he'll be working behind the scenes, doing all kinds of stuff, whether it's be writing books or uh, doing online stuff. Um, he's an absolute machine. And, uh, you know, there's another example of somebody that's gone on this journey. But, but for me, at least I, that's been my little thing here in the UK. I've, I've built this business with Bear, and it's been a fun journey. Away from Dad, who's down in South Africa, I'm over here. So I've taken what I've learned from dad and I'm trying to do it on my own over here. And I made that very clear to dad. I've got to stay here. I've got to do my own thing. And I think, so I've tried it and I think everybody's got to give it a shot. I, I love it. You're making me think of what well, uh, you're making me think of one thing, but a comment first. So your, your humbleness of the role that I know you play there is, is, is remarkable. So I'll just leave that there. Right. Uh, so I'll just park that there and just leave that there. Um, but you're making me flash back years ago. I was running an innovation session for a major, a major company and we were pulling together a cross-functional team and we we're coming up with new product innovation streams and whatever. And I was sitting in the office of my lead client um, who I didn't really know, um, but I was going to kick off the session in two days with his team. And I'm looking at his office as mm -hmm. we do. And he's got a picture of old school boxers and I'm going to forget the boxers names, but you know, it was back in like the forties. And I'm like, and he had a couple of other things and I just interrupted him and I say, I'm sorry, I'm distracted. It's like, I need to know what these things mean because clearly they're in your office for a reason. I said, tell me about the boxers. He goes, well, up until that time, boxers operated by the rules, right? They would march to the center of the ring at the bell and they would stand toe to toe, flat footed, and they would just pummel each other until so-and-so. And I'll look up the name of it and I'll put it in the show notes said, wait, there's no rule that says I can't move around. Like there's no rule in boxing that says I have to stand there. So he would come to the middle of the ring and then he would just start doing this dance around the thing and nobody could touch him and he would outlast people yeah. and he would win and he became remarkably successful. And I'm like, so why is this in your office? I said to my client, he goes, cause my team thinks that there's rules that aren't breakable and yeah, I yeah. just want them to know. And I literally got up at that moment. I said, I understand how this is working. The problem is I'm taking this and this off your wall and they're coming to us. And the other <laughs> she goes, you're taking stuff out of my office. And this man doesn't really know me at this point. I said, this is, just how we're kicking off the, in two days and I need these props. But I, I hear you talking about rule breaking and being like not afraid to break rules that are breakable, like not ones that are totally sacrosanct, but there are things that people get constrained by. A Bear Grylls, an Elon Musk, a Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. right? Those people say, well, wait a minute, I don't need to do things that way. I can break rules. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's all about that. I tell you, uh, I, and, and you know, dad did it. I'll tell you, go all the way back to the start with Shamwari. When you talk about rule breaking, all the farmers that he had started buying up, 
a lot of them existed on the border of this big chunk of land. And then dad stood up in a meeting. He called all the farmers to Shamwari and he said, guys, I want to bring back the lions. I want to bring back the elephants. I want to bring back the rhinos. And these farmers, they, they all laughed at him and it was embarrassing for him. And uh, they said, and they brag about how their great grandfather shot the last hyena out in 1862 and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, that must have been soul destroying for him because it's sort of, you know, they're the, the, um, the, the dream stealers. That's what yeah. Bear calls them. I love that saying, the dream stealers. Steer well clear of those dream stealers because they'll destroy you um, if you're that type of person. But he said, well, stuff this, you know. And uh, he, I, I, I believe me, every single one of those farmers either sold or and benefited from the success of Shamwari because they probably sold at a premium or they've turned their game, their, their, um, their stock farms into game farms today. And, and that's the success and that's the legacy of that because he broke the rules. There are now 17 other game reserves around Shamwari today. And he's turned the whole of that Eastern Cape into uh, a wildlife destination, probably second to Kruger National Park up in the north. I mean, that's great legacy. Yeah. In the whole of South Africa. Yeah. 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 Paul, I've got two questions for you. So sure. your dad is this entrepreneur that has just broken ground time after time. So I'm interested for our listeners, what is it that drives him as a change leader? Like what keeps him going? You know, when he's standing with those farmers and they're saying, you mad, why are you bringing lions back? Like what keeps him going personally as somebody who is just such an icon, you know, with driving change and entrepreneurialism? And then secondly, um, I had a conversation with a boss of mine years ago when I was first starting my, my career and I remember comparing some people in the team and he said to me, Roz, you cannot compare people. Everyone is different. Like mm -hmm. you need the entrepreneurs, you need the people mm -hmm. that just sit behind the desk and get on with the job. Like you cannot have a team where everyone is the same, you know, and that mm -hmm. was 20 years ago and I'll never forget that conversation. But what is it about somebody like your dad and you now, you know, and Murray and, and the rest of the mm -hmm. business taking this on, that keeps people engaged through this uncertainty because it is an environment of just constant uncertainty. And as staff members, you know, you say you've got people that have been there for 30 years mm. and everyone that works with Mantis loves the brand. You know, what is it about your dad as that iconic change leader that people buy into? And what sure. is it that keeps him going, you know? Okay, so if you're in a boardroom with my dad and you tell him you can't do something because of X, Y, and Z, He'll tell you to F right off. <laughs> Just get <laughs> out the meeting. He does not have a negative bone in his body. It is, and I, I, I promise you, it's just in his DNA. And it's lovely to watch because you all start thinking about that. And you, when you're sitting in a meeting and you think, well, we can't do that. And you'll think back, oh, but I know Adrian will figure this out. And nine times out of 10, people will phone him or go and see him in his office. Say, listen, and he'll have the answer. Believe me, he'll have the answer. Well, and so he's, got, it might, he's got skin in the game. He's not just standing there directing. He's, yeah. he's in it fully. Oh, and, and, and Roz, we, we now are having to deal with the, the sad situation of letting staff go that have been with us forever. You know that he's personally dealing with every single one of those people. Um, and, and, it, and it's taken his toll on him. You know, he's 77. He works harder than the youngest person in that office. And, uh, and he's in the trenches with them now. And it's, it's so sad to see but it's mm -hmm. comforting to see for the ones on the receiving end um, that he's actually dealing with it. He hasn't just handed it over to somebody in HR. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's been incredible. Um, 
so yeah, when 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 those farmers laughed at him, you, you know, he, he, it probably gave him more rage and more fire in his belly to actually make this thing work. And uh, so I think bring a negative person into a meeting is quite a good thing because he'll, he'll drum the crap out of them and, <laughs> and turn it into a positive. Um, he he always looks for the positive. Uh, yeah, right now, COVID's the toughest thing that he's ever faced. There's no doubt about that because we're in the hot seat here in terms of the hospitality industry. So we, the, I think we are the hardest hit. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, yeah. and we haven't seen a, a, a cent of revenue come in since the end of March into any of our hotels. So how do we mastermind this and how do we keep spirits high? Um, which is sort of alludes to the second part of your question um, uh, related to staff. And so dad phoned me up um, one, one afternoon and he said, you know what, let's start telling the story of Mantis. It'll keep spirits high. It'll keep my spirits high as in his. And, uh, and, and so we started on this journey about six weeks ago. And I, I spent days just pulling an archive of photographs of when the lions arrived at Shamwari. And, uh, you know, dad was uh, very much involved in thoroughbred horse racing. And I managed to archive and pull out some of the original races, the big races that he won. And we went way back. It was, it was pretty cool. And, and so for the last six weeks, we've every two, every uh, twice a week, we bring out a, a, a 10 minute video and it's on our YouTube channel, Mantis Collection. And, uh, and, and so you can go and see the whole story because we always try and encourage dad to write a book, but he's too busy working to write a book. So at least somebody can actually go sit through all those videos now and write the book. So I'm yeah. so pleased that we've achieved that. And it's been a nice pick me up. We've all been involved. Yeah. We've interviewed, it hasn't just been the, the Adrian Gardner show. It's been the Mantis show and it's, uh, and we've interviewed lots of staff and, and, and uh, interesting I've people. Been, I've been, been following team. some of them on, on social. And I think yeah. Adrian's such a good storyteller. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, you know, with COVID now and this change, you know, mm. there's webinars coming out of your ears on LinkedIn, yeah. as everybody will know. But yeah. one of the big things that keeps coming out with this degree of change now is leaders now need to be emotionally mature. They need emotional sensitivity. And I think from what I'm hearing with Mantis, you know, he he's a very emotionally attuned leader. You know, as you say, when things are changing, it's how do I build that relationship? How do I spend time mm -hmm. with my people? It's building that relationship, you know, which I think a lot of leaders, they're just so worried about the bottom line and the yeah, revenue. Yeah. And, you know, as I think it was Richard Branson who said, take care of your staff and you'll have happy customers. Um, but if you, t ah, there we go. Paul's you, know just the, you know who this book belongs to? Who? That's your book. Is it mine? You gave, you gave this to me 20 years ago and I, I found it on my bookshelf. Is it losing my virginity? No, oh, it's, it's the not boring one. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's such a good thing as a leader. And we all fall into, we forget about that, you know, because you're mm. wanting to get to the shareholders and make sure that the revenue is coming in and you forget about the people sometimes. And I think that's such a strength of, of Adrian's leadership is he never forgets about the people. You know, yeah, and actually yeah. we'll put some of those videos Paul's talking about in our show notes because it, he is just such a fantastic storyteller, you know, and it's that soft side of leadership that we don't talk about enough. And he's got a great soft side, you know, if, if anybody's got an, a, a problem in the office um, and they ask to have a chat and they need something, uh, they, he welcomes them in and he, well, I've got a great story. So one day he pulls up at the gas station in, in, uh, in Port Elizabeth and there's a, the, you know, in, in South Africa, 
you, you have uh, petrol attendants, so they fill your car for you. Uh, you don't do it yourself. And of course, this African guy runs up to dad and he's out of his uniform now. He's out of his uh, BP uniform and he's about to go home. And my father says, hey, why did you come fill my car? You, you, you're ready to go home. He says, no, I'm all about service, Mr. Gardner. So my dad said, hey, get in my car. And he took him for a drive and he said, I want you to come work in my office here. I'm going to get you your driver's license and then you are going to be sent out to Shamari and you're going to become a game ranger. And, uh, <laughs> and he did this. Eh? And of course, those game rangers, if they're charismatic, he obviously saw his ability um, and, and his service level and everything else. He became one of our top game rangers there and he became a lodge manager. And then one of his clients from America said, come, come to New York for a week. And he ended up going to New York. So, you know, dad's theory there is, you know, if every it doesn't have to be white South African. If every semi-wealthy South African took one of these people under their wing a year, what an impact that would have just to empower in the smallest possible way. The, 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 the difference that that could make to the, not just to South Africans, but to the economy and the well-being of our country. Because we're in, you know, we're in a very dark place at the moment. But I think that's a nice little nugget too. When you talk about Absolutely. somebody that really cares about the, you know, the, the lowest level person in the group all the way to the, to the top. The top. He's, he's incredible. Yeah. And I think this, Patrick, this, you know, touches on some of the conversations we've had in our other interviews, which is as a leader, you have to take 20 to 30% or whatever your percentage is away from the day-to-day -day business to, to do the future planning, but also to notice what's going on around you outside your business. You know, it's taking that time to pause and not just be on that treadmill all the time. You know, we're seeing that a lot with the successful leaders is, you know, mm. do, I, do I start my day with two hours on my own or do I, you know, give myself one day a month just to, you know, think beyond the business? And it seems like your dad builds that in every day. You know, mm. there's a percentage of his brain that he pocks to watch what's going on around him. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And the way you described it earlier, earlier, Paul, as you kind of seek opportunities and you kind of figure out where the external environment is giving you a chance to go play. Um, we go back to the risk-taking thing. You kind of investigate those. And so it does sound like as an organization, you spend a lot of time being open to exploring new spaces and figuring out how to map them. The, the, the biggest example that I have in my head is Google, right? I mean, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but for a time, Google gave most people who worked at Google 20% of their time to just work on ideas. Like everybody was in innovation. Um, it sounds like you guys have maybe not a disciplined process, mm. but a disciplined mentality of actually doing some environmental scanning, kind of looking out there, trying to understand where you might plug and play and not get mired in the operational details, even though you live and function in a really operationally driven business, right? And so I'd love you to talk a little bit about, about how you guys have been successful at managing the complexity of operational management versus this notion of leadership and executive management to kind of chart new paths. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I think uh, we do, we do. As I said um, earlier, <clears throat> all our general managers are, are given kind of free reign and they run their own little units um, effectively. And, and, and we've got a very clever little system whereby they submit their figures once a week and we can see and their red flags, we quickly get them, we summons them, or we get them on a Zoom call or whatever else. So we keep our finger on the pulse at the same time. But yeah, there's no template for it really. I think uh, we, we, we do like 
everybody to come come to us with ideas. I love that. I could I, I absolutely get a thrill out of um, somebody coming to my office with an idea, and uh, and so we 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 all about that. And I think even more so now when we're in the dog box and we we can't find our way out of this. You know, one of my staff um, in the student program. So we we aside from just gap year students coming to um, South Africa, we set up a business called Vets Go Wild, which is really veterinary students um, coming to South Africa for two weeks, third and fourth year vet students, and they come and fulfill their EMS, which is extramural study component that they have to do, whether it be with a local vet down the road here or with a, with a bigger outfit. And so we've, we've filled that little niche and we, it's, it's not a big business for us, and, and this is where it gets quite interesting because we probably get up between 80 and 100 students from all over the world. We've had about 37 um, different schools engaged with Vets Go Wild and, and they feed us students. And, and they have this amazing immersive experience with our vet called Dr. William Folds um, for two weeks. And so now obviously it's EMS season. So they should all be out in the field for the next few weeks and none of them can come. So uh, Taryn, who heads up our worldwide experience division, our, our Mantis Impact Division, said, well, why don't we set up Vets Go Wild online? I said, okay, that's a good idea because, you know, we, we're not only targeting 70 students a year. Now we can take this to probably the 10,000 that enroll every year and, and do a high-class online product so that they, instead of, because a lot of them can't afford to come all the way to Africa, let's bring Africa to them. And so it's going to be William Folds, and he's going to present to those kids. Um, where he'll dart a rhino. We'll have the cameras there filming the rhino, and he'll talk them through, you know, what, why are we giving it vitamin C and why we've covered the eyes and ears why, because it's quite dramatic and why we're having to saw the horn off because of the poaching crisis, blah, blah, blah. So it'll be as immersive as we can take it. And I'd like, love to take it a step further and do that in VR, and that'll come. But I think we're onto something. So... There's an idea that was born out of um, uh, one of our managers who's taken this business and run this business for the last several years. And we empowered her to just think out the box and we're going to fulfill that uh, vision of hers now. So that's a classic example. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I think when you talk about, you know, how, uh, uh, how things change going forward, because um, what happened in, I told you in, in 2008, we sold the, the crown jewels, uh, as, as in Shamwari and the two other game reserves, um, to um, Dubai government. And, and we were left with a very nimble mantis and, and, and a few eco-lodges, but an interesting product. And we created our bucket list and, 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 and we cottoned onto something. And we suddenly reached out to all these lodges around the world. And suddenly mantis was quite a sexy product again. Um, and a real salt of the earth ecotourism mm -hmm. product. In 2017, we suddenly got a knock on the door and, and, uh, and, and our next change was about to happen. And, and, and there was a big corporate, as in the second largest hotel group in the world, Accor. And they said, guys, we like what we see here. This is a fascinating collection. And uh, we can see the, the vision for this. We can see Adrian and Paul's vision. And, and we want to take this and, and turn this into something real. And so for us, uh, and you can imagine all our staff now. Ooh, now we're going to become a corporate. What's going to become of our jobs? And you know, how do you deal with that? And so that was uh, that was pretty scary for a lot of them. But they, uh, I think, they're starting to see the real benefits of that. Firstly, because we did the deal just before COVID, but we did it two years before COVID. So that's probably we now have a big brother to help us through this mess. So I think that's we can be grateful for that. But um, for us, it was suddenly. 
we'd never had this massive loyalty program. Uh, we, we didn't have a loyalty program for our clients. And we, we now have one which has 50 million people in. Uh, we didn't have online distribution. Well, you know, you plug into the ACO system, you've got hundreds of thousands of agents and all kinds of interesting things that we, could, with, that we never had access to. For ACO, it was about um, acquiring a, a, a foot, getting a, a stronger foothold in sub-Saharan Africa because they see Africa as an interesting place to be. And also they suddenly owned an eco brand, which Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, Radisson, none of them have. And particularly coming out of a COVID world, they certainly are seeing this as probably one of the most exciting brands for them because we don't know where corporate's going to go but we hopefully know where ecotourism is going to go because I think, well, I believe, and I think a lot of us in our industry believe that is the conscious traveler emerging out of this mess that is going to be far more respectful of the planet and um, hopefully an older generation that's going to think that way too, not just a younger generation. And so I think ACOR is going to prime us up with something really exciting. And I think our staff are, are pretty um, excited by that. And they're seeing the benefit of partnering with a, a true hospitality group with, uh, with, 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 which just punches way above its weight. I think it's going to be a very exciting journey. Yeah, and it's also this uh, notion of purpose-led brands. You know, we've all discussed this at length mm. that the consumer of today and the, the Gen Zs and, you know, all the consumers coming up are just far more uh, purpose-led, you know. Paul, I want to quickly pivot um, as we, we sort of start to wrap our conversation up. I want to pivot a little bit onto you know, a more global topic, which is um, the UN sustainability mm -hmm. goals. You know, if you look at the 2030 agenda, I think it's almost or just above half of them are, are focused on, you know, environmental issues, you know, and, and saving the planet and, you know, talking about purpose-led brands. Where is Africa and how do you see Mantis's role in these goals? And then another question is really, you know, you started out as a family business, you're now getting into, you know, a corporate environment, but then you've also got these global agenda issues to, to deal with. You know, how are you taking the, the team on that journey and, and what is the role you guys see yourselves playing, um, you know, in this, in this global agenda? Good, good questions, Roz. Um, yeah, in terms, of, in terms of the planet, um, you know, what we did uh, when we, uh, we, this is how serious we take it. Obviously, our DNA is very con much conservation driven. So we, when, we, when we formed the, um, the partnership with ACOR, we said, right, um, we, in doing so, we encourage you to set up a foundation. And we encourage that we do this together. And we, so we did. We set up the CCFA, which is the uh, Community Conservation Fund for Africa. And it kind of says what it does on the job, you know. You can't just look after the wildlife. You've got to look after the community that borders that wildlife. Otherwise, it's a disaster. So you marry the two together, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect um, uh, fix. And so when you look at Africa and uh, these, you know, the UN stepping up to the mark now saying by, by 2030, uh, they, 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 they got issued a report. It's called the Waldron Report. And the Waldron Report reckons that you've got to protect 30% of the land and the sea. Uh, it's got to be protected, plant protected, and and, uh, and and that's how we're going to save the planet um, from global warming and everything else. So if that's achieved, great. But how do you achieve that in a country like Great Britain, where probably 
5% of the, the country is under agriculture and urban and everything else. And you've got a huge population and blah, blah, blah. And, and so much of the rest of the world is like that. And then you look at like, you look at a, a continent like Africa, which uh, is, they, they're calling it the conservation continent because I think largely thanks to South Africa, but also largely thanks to uh, all the NGOs doing amazing work. There's one in particular called African Parks. It's founded out of South Africa, but they are, uh, they've been handed the reins of so many national parks that have come out of war-torn situations like Senegal. Uh, they've, they're now rehabilitating the Senegal National Park and, and rehabilitating so many other national parks that have been completely decimated. Another one is Akagera National Park in Rwanda. You can imagine what happened mm -hmm. there because after genocide, there was no food and every animal was, was butchered for food, understandably so. But they're rewilding they, they re, um, that whole park today. And, and there's so much of that going on. And it's all born out of South Africa, which I love. And, um, but there's, I think that, that if you look at this, Africa could become the savior of the planet if we think about it. Because so much of it is, is protected. There's so many vast spaces still. And, and I think it could be the golden child of the, of the continent. And I think that that's something that, that is the opportunity for Africa post COVID, I think. I think we've, we've, you know, if we could get all the governments working along those lines, get Africa parks doing more of what they're doing, I think is a very bright future. We, none of us can see it right now, but um, it, it, it was a very revealing article written on this. And, and that's what, what um, triggered it for me. Um, so, so then, uh, you know, obviously Mantis coming out of all of this, get, getting involved in the whole corporate world and, and then with all this change on the horizon, um, I, I think that it, 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 if we survive this, it could put us in a very interesting position because um, I think we are well-primed. You know, as I said, we, we don't, we're not just a hotel group. We've got the Mantis Big Five, you know, we, we, which we live by today. And two of those are education and conservation. You know, the others we mentioned earlier, development, hospitality, and marketing. But the two most important are education and conservation. And if we could, we could live by that as a group, take that um, across the continent of Africa and other parts of the world, I think we're onto something. Um, yeah. and, 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 and having a big brother like Accor behind us to help us deliver on that, I think is, is going to be amazing. So I think that's the future. I love it. I, I, there's so many things that I'm jotting down that I want to dig into, but I, I, I'll pick one just as a final <laughs> question from my end along the way. A lot of what you talk about is um, there's a little bit of a boldness to, you know, the way you guys have chosen to move as an organization. There's an awful lot of authenticity, right, of staying true to what you have. And you know, our listeners kind of may not feel empowered to do some of that thing, but the word that kept coming up to me is, you all seem to get to a point of focus. This is the problem we should be focused on, right? Like we should be focused on this. And oftentimes in change, that's actually the hardest thing, right? And so we just went from kind of small problems to focus on how to be a how to be an entrepreneurial company within a new corporate entity. That's like a focus. You got to figure that out. Then we Roz's question took us, how do we focus on continental Africa being the crown jewel of the planet over the next couple of years? That's a different focus at a slightly different plane, right? But this notion of clarifying and focus, is there some tip or trick you would tell our listeners? Like, how do you, how do you make sense of all of that? Because there's so much out there. So like, how have you guys and how have you personally kind of helped drive focus on the right 
problem to solve and and then really make sure that you're spending your time on the right things. Is there a, a one thing that you would kind of crystallize that on? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, because... no, no one said this was going to be an easy podcast. <laughs> it was to be your last question, Patrick. No, <laughs> let me let me come up with that one because you know as I said it I said it earlier. You know, you you in an entrepreneurial environment and you're an opportunist and you sort of grab any opportunity that comes by. The temptation is just so great; it's very very difficult. And uh, you know, uh, and 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 then you you have your team thinking like that. So you've got to rein them in every now and again. Um, it's, it is a very tricky one to, to answer because it's almost, it's, uh, oh God, I don't know how to answer it, to be honest. It's, uh, and, and that's actually a perfect answer because sometimes people are so good at that. It's just an intangible thing that your gut tells you something, right? Yeah, and and it, it really does sound like you guys do, do that very strongly. A hundred percent. You know, I think, we, I think where we get it right is when we start seeing something work, then we all pounce and we spring into action and we really make it work and, 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 and we drive that home hard. So when Shamwari, Shamwari was a toughie, I mean, you go all the way back to that. It's probably a good way to finish is, um, you know, I remember, I, I, listen, I was only 13, 14, so I wasn't involved then, but what, how the hell did we make this thing work in the early 90s when tourism was zero? I remember dad saying, right, we need to get black rhino. Black rhino are so endangered and we can make a big story out of this and we'll buy. They, they literally bought a monster truck. You guys will know what they are in America. Those huge <laughs> wheels. And we called it the rhino tracker. And we, we put a microchip in the rhino's horns. It was so Jurassic Park. And you'd have the rhino <laughs> driving with all your guests bouncing around, just going through the bush with the rhino tracker doing his thing. And, and uh uh, you know, that was something we had to experiment with because we didn't know if Shem we didn't know how to get Shamwari working. And then we brought in a, a, a village. We had a tribal village and we had dancers and we tested that. And that probably didn't really work and it probably wasn't the right thing to be doing and, and so on and so forth. But when, when, the, the, when the tides turned and the tourism floodgates opened after 95, we, it was actually simple. We would, all we had to do was deliver a game drive, a big five experience, make sure that the game rangers were on their game because they, they could make or break the experience for your guests. Make sure they saw good game. And that's tricky on its own because you can't plonk animals here, there and everywhere. But then have good service and focus on all of that and focus on this beautiful history that I told you about right at the beginning because that's what the, that was what the formula was. And, and, and we actually did. We, we, we all focused on a, on, on a goal that got us there and then and became the, the world's leading game reserve for probably 20 years as a result. Of I love experience. it. You know, you're making me think of uh, the final comment. Uh, Sarah Blakely uh, is the founder and CEO of uh, Women's Wear, Women's Shapewear Spanx, the company. I think she was the first female billionaire in the world because she started Spanx. Mm -hmm. And the way she's talked about this is, you know, her key to success is you start small, think big, but scale fast, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. like, start with small things, right? But think really big that you're going to build and figure out which small things and then scale fast. And your description of that made me kind of think of that mantra from 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 Sarah Blakely, which is like, you know, just start small, get going, investigate, test and learn, think big and then really be ready to scale. So thank you for that answer. I know it's a really abstract question, but it really meant a lot. Yeah, thank I you. Got, thank you. I got there in the end, I think. And, 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 and we did. We scaled fast after that because Shamwari... Uh, before we knew it, we had we had ten other products. So there you go. We we had the formula. We had the relationships with the distributors, and and, and the rest was history. 
Awesome. Yeah. And I think another thing you guys have done well, you mentioned earlier partnerships and alliances. You know, I think a, a strong leader also realizes they can't do everything themselves. You know, how do, as you, you mentioned the people, but also how do I align with businesses that have skills that we don't have? So that's you know fantastic. Dad would kick my ass for not bringing that up because uh, he is the biggest advocate of ambassadors and people that believe in what you do. So I spoke about Dr. Ian Player as an yeah. ambassador. He was one of the greatest. Eh? While all those farmers were laughing at dad, Ian said to dad, just soldier on. You're going to win. Soldier on. Yeah. I love yeah. it. And there were, and there were many others. Virginia <laughs> McKenna, you know, the, the actress from yeah. Born Free, and we created the whole Born Free Sanctuary. You came on one of those rescues that we did. Yep. That was a, a huge, huge story for, for Shamwari, an, an alliance. Um, yeah. You know, and I talk about Bear Grylls. He's, a, he's another great ambassador to our brand, I guess, and all the other people that we talk to. So don't ever discount that. As I said, David, yeah. kick me in the eyes for forgetting that. So thanks for reminding me, Roz. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Well, Paul, it's been an amazing conversation. And I think just a great illustration of really, you know, buying into a vision, being able to tap dance and adjust to that vision along the way. And mm. then really what's come out so much for me is just, you know, operating with that true purpose, passion, and as Patrick says, focus. So thank you very much. I think our listeners will thoroughly enjoy it. And for more um, information on the Mantis group, you can find them at mantiscollection.com. And to our listeners, stay tuned at changecultivators.com for more updates on our podcasts.